transition now to, to uh, studying God's Word together. Um, we are in Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 11. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can just follow along right there in the bulletin. Hear the Word of the Lord. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even uh, to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas, or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had uh, delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, send us your spirit to instruct our minds and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So over the past couple of months, we've been doing an in-depth study in the final chapters of Matthew, asking the question, what is the meaning of Jesus' death on the cross? Obviously central to the Christian faith, but why did Jesus die? And we've seen all kinds of answers to that, um, different meanings. But historically, there have been three main interpretations of Jesus' death on the cross. And these three interpretations differ in saying who was the cross addressed to? Who was the target of the cross? So, for example, the first interpretation of the cross, says that the cross was aimed at us. The cross is God's expression of love to humanity. And he says, this is how much God has loved humanity. That he sent his son and his son died, gave his own life. And that when we receive that love, it transforms us and we become like Jesus and give our life away in love. And so the example is kind of moral Interpretation. So that was championed by Peter Abelard, who's the, uh, the medieval theologian. And then there's a second interpretation called Christus Victor. The Christus Victor interpretation said, you know, the target of the cross wasn't so much us, God showing us his love, but the target was the evil 
forces of Satan and sin in the world, the dark powers of the world, and that the cross was Jesus' great victory over evil. And so Jesus came as our representative, as a king. You know, it was like when David uh, killed Goliath and all the people were up on the hillside, all the Israelites were on the hillside watching David defeat their enemy for them. That's what Jesus did. He defeated our enemy for us and he rose victorious. So that's the meaning of the cross. It's targeted at the dark forces of evil. Now, um, so Abelard says the target is us. Christus Victor says the target is sin and Satan and evil. But the third interpretation of the cross is called penal substitution. Says that the target of the cross is actually God himself. God is just. And in the face of an evil world, God's justice demands that evil is punished. And so the cross, uh, so in the cross, God's justice, God's wrath is satisfied by Jesus dying in our place instead of us. He takes the penalty, right? That's the word penal, penalty. He takes the word penalty or the punishment in our place on the cross. Now, the reason I tell you all this is that many Christians in our day would say yes to the first two interpretations. Yes, God is a God of love. He showed us how much he loved us on the cross. And yes, God is defeating the powers of darkness in the world, and Jesus overcome them in the cross and resurrection. But this third interpretation, that God is a God of wrath, God is a God of justice, we don't want to think about God in those terms. That, you know, people say, we don't like that vision of, uh, of God. I can't believe in that. But I think there is no question that penal substitution is clearly taught in the Bible. And actually, I think all three of these are taught in the Bible. All three of them. There's richness in depth. The cross is directed both to us. It's directed to the dark force of evil. It's directed towards God. And I think that we're, the text that we're looking at today is a powerful illustration of substitution. And it's the story of Barabbas. Some of you will know the story. Barabbas was a terrorist. In, in the Roman world. He, was, he was, led a rebel group. He's he a murderer. He's killed people. And, uh, and he is set free by Pontius Pilate while Jesus, who's the innocent one, is crucified. And, you know, in the Roman Empire, crucifixion was especially used for um, uh, stopping rebel forces that were, were uh, threatening the Roman Empire. And so they'd take the leader of a rebel force and they would crucify him and say, this is how we cut down the leaders who try to oppose us. And, um, and Pilate, the governor, clearly knows that Jesus is not a threat in that kind of way. He's not that kind of leader. He might be starting a revolution, but it's clearly a different kind of revolution. He's not forming an army. He's not going to kill anybody. And so he keeps saying, why are we crucifying this guy? But then in verse 26, look at that, that closing verse. It says, then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Jesus died the death Barabbas deserved. And as a result, Barabbas is pardoned. And of course, if you know the story, you know, Jesus died. There were two robbers on the side of him. There were three crosses total. And the word that's used for the two robbers is the same word that's used to describe Barabbas in the Gospel of John. And so the cross that Jesus died on, Barabbas was the leader of these three bandits. So these were his partners in crime, these robbers with him. And Jesus takes Barabbas' cross. That was the cross that Barabbas was supposed to die on. And Jesus dies on his place 
and Barabbas is set free. That's what substitution is. That's what's happened in the cross. And so this morning, I want to talk about uh, substitution, study substitution by looking at this text together, by, by asking two simple questions. First question is, what are the objections to substitution? Why do some Christians say, we don't want to think about God that way? What are those objections? How do we answer those? And then once we've answered the objections, we're going to answer a second question that says, how then should we understand substitution? And I should say, I think this sermon is probably more of a teaching sermon. You know, some sermons are, you know, preaching, inspiring sermons. Some are intellectual, doctrinal sermons. So this, is, this probably falls in that category. So stay with me. A lot to talk about. So first, what are the objections to substitution? Why do people say, I don't think the Bible teaches that? I don't think that's what the cross is about. Well, first, three, uh, three answers to that. The first objection is this. Some people might say, isn't penal substitution essentially cosmic child abuse? You might think that sounds strange, but that's actually exactly how some authors have put it. So, uh, one says that this view of the cross leads to a picture of God um, of a morally repugnant kind whose son becomes the hapless victim of his father's righteous anger. You know, the angry father's taking out his anger on, on his son, and it's happening on this cosmic level. Another says that Jesus' death has nothing to do with this cosmic child abuse where God suddenly decides to vent his anger and wrath on his own son. And so uh, many people think if you have this view of the cross, that God is punishing sin, then you're going to have this view that God is always angry, and he's just waiting to pounce on us as soon as we do uh, something wrong. And of course, uh, the Bible depicts God totally differently. Over and over, the Bible says, what about God? He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. That is who God is. And, uh, but still, it raises the question, is the father taking out his anger impulsively on the son in the cross? Well, you know, two times already in this story, in these passages we've been looking up to, leading up to uh, this story in, in Matthew 26 and 27, Jesus has said repeatedly that everything that is happening to him is according to the scriptures. It's already what God said is going to happen. It was God's plan that, that's, that is unfolding. What Jesus is experiencing is not God's unpredictable wrath lashing out at his poor son. This is the plan that the, God the Father and God the Son had willed from before the world began. And if you look at this passage, look how Jesus is. Look at how poised he is in the midst of this trial when he's facing crucifixion. Verse 13. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave no answer, not even, a single, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Jesus is not defensive. Jesus is not trying to get out of this crucifixion. He knows that this is the Father's purpose. This was his purpose from before the world began. And actually, in the Gospel of John, this is what Jesus says. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus says, I only die according to my own authority, my own will, 
my own purposes in the world. No one has that kind of authority. It's not this wildly out-of-control situation that Jesus is walking into. And actually, you know, uh, when I was in seminary, I, uh, I took a I was in a preaching class, which was in a small room where there's about 10 seminary students who would all give each other ser- sermons to each other, and then we'd listen to them and give each other feedback. And in one of the sermons, a, a guy showed a video, maybe you've seen this video, that is supposed to explain Jesus' death on the cross. And in the video, there's this train that's going towards a drawbridge. And there's a drawbridge keeper who, you know, has the lever that makes the drawbridge go down. And the train's about to come, so he needs to put the lever down so the drawbridge comes down. And right before the lever comes down, there's his little son climbs up onto the bridge, and he's about to get run over by the train. And so the father is put in this situation, do I save my son, or do I save all the you know, hundreds of people are on this train. And what do I do? And of course, you know, he puts the drawbridge down and his son dies. And it's supposed to be his picture of the gospel. And, you know, I was watching this thing. I was horrified. I was like, I, you know, I had little kids. I'm thinking of my little kids being climbing up on the, <laughs> on the, on the bridge. And, and it's an absolutely terrible picture of, of what's happening. Because the father has no choice. The son had no say in it. He's just climbing around. It's like this wildly chaotic world that all of a sudden he's, you know, it's just this tragic situation. That has nothing to do with what Jesus is doing in the scriptures. Jesus and the Father, before the worlds began, have planned out their purposes together and how they are going to save humanity. And so let me give you a better picture of what's happened. Uh, the, the great epic poem, Paradise Lost, was by John Milton, written in the, uh, in the 16th century, is a story about the fall of humanity. And in the beginning of Paradise Lost, you know, Satan leaves hell, and he's going to get revenge against heaven by tempting Adam and Eve. And there's this great scene in book three of Paradise Lost where it goes up into heaven, and the Father and the Son are in heaven, and they're watching Satan go from hell to earth to go tempt Adam and Eve. And the Father says, well, what's going to happen is he's going to tempt Adam and Eve, and they're going to fall, and death and sin and misery is going to come to humanity. And there's going to be all this destruction. It's going to be terrible. And he said the only hope for them is if there's someone in heaven who would go and die in their place to take God's justice in their place. And so the father asked this court filled with thousands of angels, is there, is there such love in heaven anywhere that someone would go and die in the place of humanity? And it's silent. Not all the angels are like, no way, I don't want God's wrath falling on me. And then Milton has this great line where the silence is broken by the voice of the son. Father, Your word is past, man shall find grace. Behold me then, me for him, life for life I offer, on me let thine anger fall. Account me man, I for his sake will leave thy bosom. And this glory next to thee freely put off, and for him lastly die well pleased. On me let death wreck all his rage. And so it's this counsel before the world began, where the Father and the Son together have purposed this. This is not cosmic child abuse. That is absolutely absurd. Nothing like that in the Bible. So first objection. Is penal substitution cosmic child abuse? Absolutely not. But a second question, maybe you haven't had that objection, but another question you might have that you've maybe had is, if Jesus died on the cross instead of us, why do we still die? Right? Didn't he die so we didn't have to die? But then we're going to get to the end of our life and we're going to die. That's a good question. Let me just answer that briefly. 
Um, the answer to that is that the Bible talks about a number of different kinds of death. So on the, you know, the first kind of death that you know, the Apostle Paul, when he talks about when a Christian dies, he usually uses the language of falling asleep. When you die, it's like you fell asleep because at the resurrection, we're going to be raised up and we're going like, to come back and we're going to wake up and come back to life. Or, or he says that I departed to be with Christ. And so that kind of death, the falling asleep, Christians all experience. It's the second kind of death that the Bible talks about is that we're all supposed to die daily, right? You're supposed to take up your cross and follow Jesus, and you were supposed to die with him and die to our flesh and die to ourselves. And so dying daily is a metaphorical kind of death. Yeah, we still do that kind of death. But then there's a third kind of death in the Bible that is like an ultimate kind of death that has a finality to it. And the Bible usually uses the language of perishing, or being destroyed. So for example, in Philippians, Paul says this, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, their end is destruction. And that word for destruction is actually the same word that we find in our text here that describes Jesus' death. Look at verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And so when we say that Jesus died instead of us, um, it's, it's this third kind of death that he took. It's the perishing. It's the destruction. It's the ultimate kind of death and separation from God that, that landed on Jesus in our place. And so on the one hand, you know, we still... At the end of our life, our bodies die. We depart to be with Christ. We still die daily. We die in these ways. It's this third kind of death that lands on Jesus. Okay? So, first objection, is it cosmic child abuse? Absolutely not. The father, lovingly with his son, planned this, per this plan of redemption from the, the be before the worlds began. And is the second question, if Jesus died, why do we still die? It's because there's different kinds of death that the Bible talks about. The third objection, which I think is probably the most significant, says, how can you call it just? How can we say God is just when he lets the wicked go free and the innocent are killed? Like, who wants to live in that world? If we're saying that's what God's plan was, for the innocent to die, Jesus, and the wicked to go free, who, you know, if you lived in a, in a world where terrorists were all let free and pardoned, and the good people in the society were executed, you don't want to live in that world. And actually, that's the world of this text, right? So, uh, verse 21, the governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then uh, what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. This is a horrifying scene. Jesus, who is love himself, is going to be executed, and the terrorist is being let free. This is the kind of thing that Roman governors do, that make an unjust society. And so why would we say that's the kind of thing that God does? That God has the innocent one killed and lets the wicked go free? Do we want a God like that? We don't want to live in that kind of world. And actually, I'll tell you, honestly, I was studying substitutions last year. This is a, a major question for me. I was having doubts about this, and I was like, well, maybe I need to rethink 
think this. I, need to, I, I don't understand how I could call this a good thing. And I was talking to one of our elders, Brandon Ellis. I asked him this question. I said, I don't understand this. And what he said was that Jesus didn't die as an innocent one. But the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians that Jesus became sin. He became the darkness and alienation and the horror of the separation of evil. He became that. Even though he was without sin, he became sin for us. This is the way Martin Luther puts it. All the prophets did foresee in spirit that Christ should become the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, blasphemer, etc. that ever was. For he being made a sacrifice for the sins of the world is not now, uh, for he, I'm sorry, I misread this. Um, uh, For the sins of the world is not now an innocent person without sins. Our most merciful Father sent his only Son into the world and laid upon him the sins of all men. That's an amazing thing. When you think of the love of Jesus, that Jesus did not just come down to become a man like us. He became, even though he had no sin, he became the adulterer. He became the murderer. He became sin itself. And he was sin itself being crucified. And that's why it is not this world of injustice. It is God's work against evil in the world. Okay? So three important objections... That may have been a lot uh, to process, but this is an important part of our faith, is substitution. But this leads to the second question I want to ask. Not only what are the objections, how do we answer the the objections, but but second, how should we understand substitution then? And, you know, for me, a passage like this, it's, it's loaded with suggestion, right? You know, when I read this and I think, oh, we're supposed to see that I'm Barabbas, Barabbas was supposed to die on the cross, and he got set free, and Jesus died in his place, and we're all Barabbas, who are all set free, and we're not, we don't receive God's wrath or God's punishment. But I think the most suggestive line in the whole passage is verse 25. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. And what Matthew's likely talking about there is that the Jews in Jerusalem had rejected Jesus. Jesus had a new kind of kingdom. That there's no army. There's no military. You know, we're not going to fight against the Romans. It's a kingdom of love. And the Jews said, we don't want that kind of kingdom. They rejected Jesus. And as a result, 40 years later, they went to war with the Romans. And the Romans came to Jerusalem and completely destroyed Jerusalem. It was one of the worst periods in, the his, in, the, in the, all the millennia of, of Israel's history is one of the worst few years. There was a siege laid to the city. The temple was destroyed. The city was burned. And Jesus is saying, because you are rejecting my way and you're going to try to fight the Romans, that blood is going to be on, your, on you and your children. And it was on their children just one generation later. But I think that any Christian reading this can't help but see the irony in that phrase His blood be on us and on our children. There is a hope that Jesus' blood would be on them and their children because Jesus' blood is the blood of redemption. Right? In the Christian imagination, the picture of blood totally... The meaning of that sentence takes on a totally different meaning, right? Because Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Colossians 1.20, he is reconciling 
to himself all things, whether on, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then Hebrews chapter 12, 24, uh, that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, uh, that we have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And the story of Abel in the Old Testament where Abel was murdered by his brother Cain and his blood was crying out for justice. And what Hebrews says is that Jesus' blood doesn't cry out for justice. Jesus' blood cries out for forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation. You want Jesus' blood on you and your children. That's the irony of this passage. Now, for the original audience, when they heard that word blood, the, the thing that would have come to mind is the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And when we ask the question, how should we understand substitution, Jesus' death for us, we need to understand the sacrifices of the Old Testament that were used to make atonement. In the Old Testament, you know, God's people would bring an unblemished animal, cattle, sheep, or goats, and the worshiper would lay his hands on the animal. And this was to say that the animal was taking the place of the worshiper, and the death that the worshiper deserved for his sin was now being laid upon the animal. That's what substitution is. And so Jesus came as the true and final Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, many of the critiques of substitution say, you know, this picture of God, that God is angry, and he needs blood to appease his anger. That doesn't sound like the God of the Bible. That sounds like the pagan gods. The pagan gods are the ones that are full of wrath and constantly needing to be appeased, and they're all emotional all the time. And so we have to ask that question. How is the substitution, the sacrifice of Jesus different than the pagan sacrifices? They're profoundly different. Let me just tell you briefly a couple ways they're different. First difference is that God always provides his own sacrifice. God always provides his own sacrifice. You know, the pagan gods were always demanding bigger and bigger sacrifices. It wasn't enough to bring your crops. It wasn't enough to bring an animal. Many societies, eventually, the pagan gods were demanding the children of their worshipers who would have to bring their children and slaughter their children before the god. And that was the only way that you could appease the god. It was bigger and bigger sacrifices. And God says... I provide my own sacrifices. All the animals of the Old Testament, I provide them for you. And ultimately, the ultimate sacrifice is God himself giving himself as a sacrifice, his self-substitution in our place, where he becomes the Lamb of God. This is the total reverse of the pagan gods. Okay, So God always provides his own sacrifice, but the second thing that's different about God of the Bible and the pagan gods is that God provides his own sacrifice for sinners. And this is the last observation I want to make about substitution. One of the most famous passages about substitution in the Bible comes in Romans 5. And let me read it to you. Hear these words. Apostle Paul says this. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Now, what Paul is likely talking about here is that in the ancient world, there were a number of stories, ancient Greek plays, that would talk about someone dying in the place of someone else. So, for example, Euripides has a play in which the god Apollos says to the main character, you're going to die a sudden death soon, unless you can find someone else who will die in your place. And if you can find someone who will die in your place, then I'll let you go free. And the whole play is about his wife, uh, Alcestis, who is willing to take his place. His wife dies in his place. And it is because he is such a good man. Uh, He says, I had you as my wife in life, and you alone will be called my wife in death. And so Paul says, the ancient world has this tradition that rarely someone will die in the place of a righteous person. And so that the person doesn't need to die. And Paul takes it and turns it on the head and he says the gospel is the exact opposite. Amazingly, God will die in the place of the faithless, of the wicked and the godless. This, no one has ever heard of, anything like that. So substitution takes everything about the pagan world and turns it upside down. It's a generous God. And it's a God who doesn't die for the the good. It's a God who dies for the wicked. And what this tells us is that there are crude versions of substitution, like the boy getting run over by the train. But substitution is not a doctrine of the angry pagan gods. It is the great offer of love to sinners. It is the good news of hope. And praise God that Jesus has loved sinners like us so greatly. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the great love you've shown us in Jesus who's taken our place on the cross. Fill us with wonder that you are not like the other gods the world has known. You are abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We thank you for these purposes to redeem and save us and rescue us through Jesus. Give us faith that we may lay hold of Christ who is our hope. In his name we pray. Amen.